together. You know, as we were singing that song, that hymn, Be Thou My Vision, my thoughts immediately turned to the, just the, the rich, wonderful passage of Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews says this, and let this just be a challenge to us as we turn our attention just for a moment or two to the Lord in prayer, where the author says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay also aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. You know, as always, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray over us. I'm going to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. But before we do any of that, I want you just to take the next 60 seconds just to ask for God's help. Don't just try to think of it on your own, but ask the Lord's help to simply say, Lord, where, where is maybe my life, where does my heart, where do my eyes need to be brought in alignment with yours fixed on Jesus? Father, show me where I'm looking at other things, where I'm trusting in other things, where I'm distracted by other things. Because I think we'd all agree in principle and declaration and affirmation that, that, that it's always right and always best to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. But I think we'd all also agree, I know I certainly would, that my eyes are not always fixed on Jesus. So for the next minute, just as the music plays, but I'll be quiet, say, Lord, just simply show me where I need to fix my eyes on you. And then choose to do it. Lord, I do choose to fix my eyes on you. Where do you want, where does he want to bring you into alignment with himself this morning. You do business with him, and then I'll pray for us all. Father, in that passage that Frank read for us a moment ago, there was this vision, this prophetic vision, Lord, real to John, written on the pages of Scripture for us, of, of Jesus Christ and all his heavenly glory. And Father, in just a minute, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where he, along with two other disciples, got a momentary glimpse of that as well. John saw the glory of Jesus Christ twice while still a resident of planet Earth. Father, how amazing that would have been, how incredible and indescribable it would have been just for even a moment to see Jesus in all of his glory. Father, we don't have that privilege as of yet in the same way. One day we're promised we will. We will see Jesus Christ high and lifted up, seated on a throne, lofty and exalted, and we, like John, will fall at his feet like dead men and women in awe and wonder and glory. Father, we can't manufacture that on earth, but we can do what your word tells us to do. Father, because everything your word tells us to do, it equips us to do. And so when it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, Father, we're going we're gonna to plant our flag this morning. We're going to draw our line and say that, at least for the next 30 or 40 minutes, as we open up the scriptures, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. But Father, we all know that what's easy to declare is hard to follow through on. And Father, the fact of the matter is this, some of us carry some baggage in with us. Some of it's legitimate stuff. Some of it's just sin. Some of it's a distraction. Some of it's comparison. Some of it's heartache. Some of it's just busyness, boredom. Father, we realize in order to fix our eyes on Jesus, we've got to turn away from other things. 
So, Father, my prayer is that for me and for each man and woman and child in attendance here today, we'd be able to do that, to turn our eyes away from the things of this world, to look full in the wonderful face of Jesus. And, Father, listen not to what the preacher has to say, but what the Spirit of God wants to speak through the preaching of the Word to our hearts. And, Father, we pray that by the time we're done, whatever else does or doesn't happen, whatever is or is not accomplished, we'll be able to say, surely the presence of the Lord was in this place, and he met with me. Father, we don't just want that for ourselves today. We want that everywhere the people of God, the believers in Jesus Christ, gather together for worship today. Father, all across our city there are gatherings. All across our state, all around the world, there are gatherings of of people, big ones, small ones, vibrant ones, quiet ones, where we are seeking the face of Jesus Christ together. Father, I want to pray specifically for for Cornerstone down in Kelowna where Floyd, who preached here a couple of weeks ago, Father, where where he pastors, where they meet that new work that they're trying to break into some hard ground. Father, we pray your blessings on them that as they meet this weekend to worship you, Father, that you'll move among them in powerful ways, that you will bring lost people to yourself, that you will soften hard hearts, that you will water dry spirits, that you will raise people up who will boldly proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, do it here too. And Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, we ask as always that you would be the one who teaches, that you would guide us in truth, that you would guard us from error, that you would deliver us from distraction, and that you would, in fact, as we've already prayed, help us to see Jesus. Lord, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And when we walk out the doors in a little while, may it be with joy because we sat in the presence of Jesus at the feet of the one who died for us and rose again. And because of fixing our eyes on him, we were changed. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in the powerful and precious name of Jesus and all God's people said together, amen, amen. You may be seated. And while you're taking your seats, the boys and girls can head out for Children's Church as always. Boys and girls can head to Children's Church while you grab your Bible and turn in it and meet me once again after a couple of weeks break in the Gospel of Mark. Specifically, I want you to find your way to Mark chapter 9. Find your way in your Bible to Mark chapter 9. As you're turning there, let me just... Let me just say that as we are kind of sort of at this midpoint of summer, we've kind of come, come and gone through the 4th of July. Um, I, I don't know about you, I think for our church family, this has been a good summer so far. We've had multiple opportunities to be together, not just here on Sunday morning, but last Wednesday night and some of these other gatherings. I want to remind you, I think it was announced earlier, we've got another one of those tonight, another chance for us just to come together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ over at Tucker Park and, and just enjoy some fellowship. But I really want to encourage you, if you've kind of been sitting on the sidelines wondering about those things. Maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. Be easier to stay home. Just come out and join us. Just come for an hour. I bet you'll find you stay longer, and I bet you'll find that you're glad that you did. I think God is working on some stuff. Can I just say that I think God is working on some stuff in our midst that is about the business of knitting our own hearts together in in one cause, one purpose, one love for Christ, and he's teaching us more and more how to love each other because of his great love for us. So I want to encourage you to come out uh, with just as much as you came this morning, hopefully expecting for a good time together as a church with the Lord. Come back tonight and join us. I think you will, as I said, be glad and, and thankful that you did. With that said, I want to get to Mark 9. I want to get into the study of God's Word. As I said, it's been a a couple of weeks since we were last together. Last Sunday, we had a prayer service. The week before that, we had a a guest speaker. We had Pastor Floyd come speak to us about compassion. But now we're back in Mark's gospel. And, And I'm going to read this morning's passage for us, as always, together in a moment. But because it has been a couple of weeks, I want to remind you of something. 
And as we begin this morning our study of God's Word, what I want to remind you is that the last time we were together in Mark's Gospel, the last time we dug into the story of Jesus as Mark records it, I told you, maybe you remember, maybe you don't, but in, in that message we crossed over the turning point in the entire Gospel of Mark. That there are multiple turning points, but this was truly the biggest and most significant one. And by that I mean this. Last Sunday, the passage we went, or last time we were together, the passage we went through, there was a shift from a primary focus up to that point on who Jesus Christ is to now going forward through the rest of the gospel, why Jesus Christ came. Another way to look at it is the focus up until now has been on, on, on Jesus and, and, and his identity as the king. Who is this man? You remember Jesus asked his disciples that question. Who do they say I am? Who do you say I am? The focus up to this point has been on his identity that he is the king. Now the focus, and it's going to sharpen and narrow more and more as we go, is on his pathway to the cross. We know he's the king. Now he's headed to the cross. And the reason I remind you of that is, A, you need to know where we've been because it helps to, to remember or understand where we are going, but also because, because that's the shift or the turning point that has taken place, I believe that, that there's a sense in which that as we return to Mark's gospel this morning, it only sort of makes sense. It only sort of makes sense that though it would have been entirely unexpected to the disciples in the moment, and in a sense entirely unexpected to us if we'd never read Mark's gospel before, still there's a sense in which what happens next is exactly the kind of thing we might come to expect from Jesus. Because beginning in Mark 9, verse 1, and I'm going to read down through the end of verse 13, this is what the scripture says, this is what Mark tells us happened next. It says that Jesus was saying to them, to his 12, this is the company of the 12 disciples, saying to them, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, three structures, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to answer, for they had become terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he, Jesus, gave them, those three disciples, orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first, that is, Elijah must precede the Messiah? And he, Jesus, said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how, it is, how is it written? That the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. For I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now, what easily 
and I would say rightly, grabs our attention most firmly, most, most uh, clearly as we read through this passage is what happens at the very beginning of those 13 verses. Uh, first of all, the shocking statement or the surprising statement Jesus makes in verse 1, and then this incredible glimpse of, this gl- of his glory that he gave those three disciples in verses 2, 3, and 4. That is what easily and rightly grabs the most attention in this passage, and that's only fair. Because so far as we've been told, so far as the Bible and the rest of recorded history tells us, nothing like this had ever happened before. And we certainly believe and understand nothing like it has ever happened since. It's only fair that that's what grabs our attention. Because here's the thing. Here's what's going on. Let me just give you a summary of what's going on in these four verses. Because in verse 1, when Jesus says, and look again at your Bible, when Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What Jesus didn't mean, say what Jesus didn't mean. What Jesus did not mean to say is that some of that company of 12 disciples were, gonna, were, were never going to die, that they were going to stick around till the end of the world as we know it rolls around. They're going to be here when all of history culminates. It sort of sounds like that's what he's saying. Hey, some of you here are never going to die. You're going to be here forever and ever and ever till the end of time. But that's not what Jesus is saying. No, his message based on what follows. Because when we don't understand for sure what Scripture says, the first rule of interpretation is let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And then the second rule of Bible interpretation is let the context speak to what you're trying to figure out. So bearing those couple of rules in mind, what we understand happens here instead based on what follows or what Jesus was saying to his disciples, even though they didn't know it yet, but they were about to find out, some of you guys are going to be given a dramatic, visual preview of what will someday be revealed to the whole world in full. The Lord Jesus Christ in all of his heavenly glory as representing, as, as, as presenting the kingdom of God on earth. That's what he was saying. And we know that because, of course, that's what happens next. Look at your Bible in verse 2. Six days later, there was a little bit of gap, but not much. Six days later, Jesus takes some of them, Peter, James, and John. He brings them up on this high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now, that word transfigured, what it literally means, actually, the the Greek root is, is where we get our English word metamorphosis. It's almost exactly the same in Greek. It means a radical, total transformation. A thorough change from the inside out, where in this particular case, what transfiguration specifically means is this, as as, as pastor and author Kent Hughes puts it, he puts it better than I ever could, he says, where for a brief moment, it is a radical change or transformation, where for a brief moment in time, the veil of Christ's humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through And in doing so, he really was giving those three awestruck disciples a momentary glimpse of the kingdom of God. This is what awaits you. This is who I am. This is what the deal is all about. And and the presence, maybe you're wondering in verses uh, 3, or excuse me, in verse 4, the presence of, of Moses as representative of the Old Testament law, and Elijah as representative of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, their presence there in verse 4, speaking with Jesus. Uh, the grammar indicates they talked with each other for a long time. Luke tells us they specifically were discussing uh, the death of Jesus that was, was fast approaching. That's what they were talking about. But what that signifies, the fact that those two men appear 
appeared in some form or fashion clearly as well. What that was meant to signify to the disciples, in case they still had any doubt, is this, that Jesus of Nazareth really was God's promised Messiah. He's the fulfillment of every promise God ever made. He's the fulfillment of every prophecy that was ever delivered. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. He is the promised one. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. As, as awesome, truly awesome as that moment of transfiguration was, for our purposes this morning, as we're going to dive into the rest of this story, and, and you're going to have to follow me on this because you may want to push back just a little bit, maybe a lot when I say it, but for our purposes this morning, I truly believe that the most significant thing about this story, take it on the whole, all 13 verses, is not what Jesus said in verse 1. Nor do I even believe, and this is where I kind of maybe step on a few toes, I don't even think it's what Jesus did in verse 2. I don't think that's the most important thing about this story at all. No, I think that the most significant thing about this story, and this is the first kind of major thing in the passage I want to draw your attention to this morning, so here we go, number one. The most significant thing about this story is what God the Father told the disciples in verse 7. The most significant thing about this story, about this event, is what God the Father told the disciples when he spoke in verse 7, and, and it says, look again at your Bible at verse 7, a cloud formed, symbolizing or representing as throughout the Old Testament, the glory and the presence of God, it overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Let me ask you a question. Isn't it true isn't it true, whether we would like to, to admit it or acknowledge it or not, that the depth of attention we pay to someone else, that the, that the credence or, the, or just, yeah, just the attention that we pay to someone else we encounter in our life, largely, if not at times exclusively, depends on how much influence or authority they possess. The more power someone has, the closer attention we tend to pay. The more they can influence our lives, the closer we tend to listen. I mean, facts are facts. You pay much closer attention to the police officer who pulls you over than you do to the guy who delivers your pizza, even though they both drive around with lights on top of their car, right? You listen to one more than the other because one has more influence. One has more power. And so again... What I'd say to you, and, and, and I think you can, you can put this, these pieces together yourself, but just to walk through a step at a time, I would say to you that given what Peter, James, and John just saw, they saw God the Son in all of his glory. It only makes sense that God the Father would show up and speak in this way. I'm not saying it's expected. I'm just saying it makes sense that he would show up and he would insist, guys, give him your undivided attention. Because of what you've just seen, and now you know who he is, and you're doing the math, and you're putting it together, pay attention to him. In fact, here's what the word for listen means. Your Bible says something, if it doesn't say exactly, it's something like, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That word for listen in the original language, it means this, pay attention and plan to obey. Pay attention with a view to obedience to plan to obey or to do or to respond to whatever it is he says or tells you to do. Pay attention and plan to obey. In other words, here's what God's saying. Guys, the time for, for your own opinions has come and gone. The time to, to speak your mind, that, that, that's another time and another place. 
The time to speculate and, and, and discuss and debate and, and, and question. That has come and gone. No, your assignment, because you are so privileged by what you've just seen, by what you've just sown, by the influence and the power of this transfiguration, you got one job. Close your mouth and do what he says. Pay attention and act on what he tells you to do. That's why I say to you what God the Father told the disciples is the most important thing about this story. And and, and to, split, to, to sort of spell that out, to unpack it, as it were, what I think we need to see in the rest of the passage is this. It's the second major thing I want to draw your attention to. If you're willing to follow me so far, at least give me half credit and say, yeah, that may well be the most important thing about this story, what God the Father said to the disciples. Here's why. The second thing I want you to see, why that message is so vital. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is why that message, this is my beloved son, listen to him is so vital, because I think the rest of the story spells or bears it out. And there's, there's at least three reasons why this message is so vital. Number one, and it's what we've been sort of circling around already, the reason this message is so vital, this is my beloved son, listen to him, is simply and, and foundationally because of who Jesus is. We should listen to Jesus because of who Jesus is, because of what they had just witnessed. Here's the thing. I really believe that for Peter, James, and John, the transfiguration was the single most impactful experience of their earthly lives. I don't think anything they ever saw or witnessed or experienced can quite measure up. Now, you may think differently. You may say, well, what about the resurrection? They didn't see the resurrection. They saw the risen Lord, but they didn't see him rise from the dead. Here they see him in all of his heavenly glory. I think you'd be hard-pressed to say there was any moment in their lives that was, more spiritually speaking, more dramatic or more impactful than getting a glimpse of the Son of God in all of his heavenly glory. And, and while I at least believe that's the case, and, and certainly you'd have to agree with me when I say it was meant to authenticate all of his claims of deity, all the promises, as I mentioned already, all of that being true, here's the thing. And why the message God gave, this is my beloved son, listen to him, is so important. That experience alone, even though it was the single most impactful experience of their earthly lives, perhaps, that experience alone would not be, would not be enough to carry and to sustain them through all the joys and sorrows of life that yet lay ahead. It couldn't all be about the experience. It couldn't be all about that experience. That was a significant moment, but it wasn't enough. Because here's what not I have learned, here's what I'm learning. And I'm telling you, I'm learning this like today, okay? Just true confession time. This is something God is dealing with in my heart today. Here's what I'm learning. Maturity is not forged on the mountaintop. All right? Those of you who laugh, it's because you know, right? Maturity is not forged on the mountaintop. It's inspired on the mountaintop. It's nurtured. It's fanned back into flame on the mountaintop at the conference, the prayer summit, the, uh, the Bible study, whatever it is, the, the, the worship, uh, the Sunday worship, whatever it is that sort of just like, you know, reignites your flame and, and refuels your passion. But that's not where maturity is forged. That's where you're reminded of it. That's where you're called to it again. No, maturity, spiritual maturity, you know where it's forged? In the valley. And on the plains, and in the plateaus, and the dry seasons, and the lonely times. The good times and the hard times as well, when life is not spectacular, when nobody's glowing, when it's day after day after day. That is where, listen to me, that's where the person 
promises, the power, the parables of Jesus sustain us. It's where we know we need him. It's where we've got to learn to lean on him. We don't mature on the mountaintop. We mature in the valley as we walk with him. It's where, because he, he isn't glowing. There isn't a transfiguration. There isn't a miracle a day to sort of just keep you moving along. There's not some spectacular event that's just going to like, oh, i got to have that again. No, you don't. you got to have Jesus. you got to look to Jesus. And you've got to lean on Jesus. That is where he sustains us. And that is why in verse 7, I didn't tell you this yet. I'll tell it to you now. What God literally said in verse 7 was this. This is my beloved son. Keep on listening to him. Keep on listening to him. Don't keep looking up at the mountaintop. Keep on listening to him. Don't keep craving after another experience. Keep on listening to him. Don't complain that he didn't show up on the mountain for you. Keep on listening to him. Now that you know who Jesus is, and that's why this message is so vital, because it's in the valley, and don't most of us live on the plains and in the valley? Yes, we do. That's why this message is so important. Keep on listening to him. Keep on listening to him. Not only that, that's the first reason this message is so vital. The second reason this message is so vital, this is my beloved son, keep on listening to him, is because of what was coming. In the disciples' case, because they didn't know what was coming. They didn't understand what was coming. And guess what? Neither do you. <laughs> and neither do I. Know what's coming. Because, you know, we have, um, if you look at your Bible, we've seen verse 9 before. If you've been here through Mark, our study of Mark's gospel, you have seen what's said in verse 9 before. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders. Luke says, strict orders to not tell anybody what they'd just seen. Don't tell them. We've seen that before in Mark's gospel, right? But the rest of verse 9 is new. Look at what it says. We've never seen this before. Jesus says, until... The Son of Man rose from the dead. So Jesus, here's the thing, here's what I'm saying. Jesus wants them to keep things under wraps, but he doesn't want them to keep it under wraps forever. There's a time of waiting. He want, and what, what he wanted them to wait for is, is till they understood, till they knew the whole plan, till they understood everything Jesus came to do. Because you know, you know human nature as well as I do. If they had immediately, if Peter, James, and John had immediately come down from the mountain and gone to the rest of the 12 and then gone to the crowd and then gone into the city saying, we just saw Jesus glowing up on the mountain, right? Moses was there and Elijah was too. Now half the crowd would write him off as nuts. We understand that would happen first. But those who believe them, you know what they do? They'd rush to that mountaintop by the thousands. They'd build a shrine They'd bring flowers and teddy bears to lay around it. And they would insist, ultimately what they would insist is, Jesus, take the crown now. He's clearly the Messiah. He's clearly the king. What are we waiting for? There'd be this popular uprising to crown him without delay. But another lesson we keep coming back to, another theme we keep coming back to in Mark's gospel, I hope you're picking up on it, is this, that before Jesus could receive the crown, he had to go to the what? Five-letter word begins with C. He had to go to the cross. The cross had to precede the crown. The death and resurrection as a sacrifice for our sin had to come before he could enter into his glory. And so what, what he's saying is, is, is Jesus saying, guys, because you don't know the whole plan yet, <laughs> because you don't understand all that I still have yet to do, I got, you got to be quiet. 
You don't know what's coming, so, so listen. Listen to him. Listen to me. And you know what? There's a great lesson. I don't need to go very far with it, but there's a great lesson there for us as well. Half the time, most of the time, we don't know what's going on in our lives. We don't know what's coming next. And, and our, we would do well to, to heed the words of the Lord. This is my beloved son. Just listen to him. Just listen to him. And see what he tells you to do. So the second reason this message is so vital, number one, because of who Jesus is, and we need his power to sustain us in all of life's hills and valleys. Secondly, because of what was coming, we need to listen, because we don't know what's going on, only God does. And thirdly, this is the most practical reason why this message is so vital, and it's clearly borne out in the text, is because it's simply not our style, right? Listening is simply not our style. Now, those of us who've met Peter before, we've read our Bibles, we've heard the stories, we know Peter. We're not surprised by verse 5. It's exactly this, because Peter's the guy who always has to say something even when nothing needs to be said, and that's exactly what he does here, right? We're not surprised by, as this, not even after, as it's going on, Jesus is radiating glory from the, he's not reflecting glory like the moon reflects the sun, he's radiating glory like the sun itself. Moses and Elijah are there talking to him. The cloud is is descending. God's getting ready to speak. We are not surprised at all by the fact that in the middle of all that, Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's so good to be here. Let's set up camp. Let's make a weekend out of it. I'll build a house for you. I'll build a house for Moses. I'll build one for Elijah. Because we want to make this deal last as long as possible. Who needs to go back, right? Isn't that the way we feel when we have a spiritual mountaintop? Just make it last forever, Lord. Don't make me go back to all those people, to my job, to, to, my, to my bills, to, to my trouble. Just keep, let's stay on the mountain. That's what Peter wants to do. Because in verse 6, and this is, again, this is just clearly Peter's style, for he didn't know what to answer because they become terrified. He didn't know what to answer, but he had to say something. Let's, let's make a camp. Let's, let's have some fun. And so it's also not shocking that that is when verse 7 came around. The cloud formed, overshadows them, and it is then that the voice of the Lord out of the cloud came saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Game, set, match, God. Quiet! That's that's what's going on. Or not. Because did you notice... When I read through the passage for the first time, or those of you who read ahead, maybe you noticed this. I didn't see it the first time, but maybe you did. Did you notice that right after that in verse 7, God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, okay? Be quiet. That's God the Father. Immediately after that, in verse 9, after the cloud disappears and Moses and Elijah go away, that is when we come to verse 9, and it says that that's when they were coming down the mountain, and Jesus, God the Son, gave them orders to what? God the Father says, shh. God the Son says, shh. Did you read verse 10? Look at verse 10. They seized upon that statement and began discussing with each other what rising from the dead meant. Listen to me, whether they meant to or not, in direct defiance of God the Father and Christ the Son. They just went right on talking. Speculating about end times chronology. Trying to put the pieces together. Trying to make a chart, a map, a design to figure it out. They can't be quiet. It's not our style. It's not the way we roll. 
And so they begin to debate. And this is verses 10 through 13. And I'm here to tell you, I am not going to interpret all of 11, 12, and 13 for you. There's just not time. And I don't even understand it all myself. But they are debating. They're saying, listen, okay, we know Messiah is coming. This is, 11, this is my synopsis of 11, 12, and 13. You're not going to be happy with it, but I'll do my best, okay? Jesus, or the disciples say this, we know Messiah is coming, and we think we just saw him. We know we just saw him. But we remember the Old Testament prophets, like Malachi said that before Messiah comes, Elijah comes first. Now, we just saw Elijah up on the mountain. Moses was there too. We're not sure what he was doing, but Elijah was there, and we knew he was promised. What is going on? Is it the end of the world as we know it? Is it the beginning of the kingdom? How does this fit together? We've got to understand. We, it doesn't make sense. Let's think, even though God just said be quiet, and even though Jesus just said be quiet, they can't help themselves because it's not our style. More specifically, here's what I've observed in my life. Maybe you've observed it in yours. The reason they just went right on talking is because silence, silence in the face of spiritual uncertainty is something that most of the time we just can't handle. Waiting on God. It's so incredibly hard. Silence in the face of spiritual uncertainty isn't our style. We want answers. Amen? We want clarity. Amen? We want somebody to give us a tribulation timeline, right? With, with seals and bowls and trumpets and beasts to tell us how the whole thing's going to go down. Somebody map it out because we want answers. Why? Because it's so much more fun to speculate on God's plan than it is to wait on God's timing. Listen, preacher's preaching to himself first, okay? It's just as hard for me as anybody else. God, what are you doing? In the face of uncertainty, I don't want to be quiet. I want action. And I want clarity. I don't want to listen to him. I just want to be satisfied. And again, that's why the message of verse 7 is so, so, so vital. Because as, as I keep saying to you, with you, as we go through this study, if the disciples needed to hear that, how much more do I? How much more do you, do we? I mean, again, they're with him 24-7. They've been in the presence of Jesus for two years, and they have to be reminded to be quiet and wait. If Peter, James, and John need to hear it, the pillars of the church, I need to hear it. I need to listen. We need how much more? Here's the question. How much more should we be listening to Jesus? The answer to that question is self-evident, isn't it? A lot more. <laughs> A lot more. More today than yesterday. More tomorrow than today. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And because that, that is just the plain and simple answer, wherever we are in our spiritual walk, following the Son, living for Jesus, we can all use to listen to Jesus more. Here's how we're going to spend our last few minutes together. We're simply going to look, third and finally, at, at exactly how it is we can listen to Jesus. Because it's one thing to tell you we need to do it. It's quite another to begin to unpack how. So let's take our last 10 minutes and simply consider, and I believe we can do it right from this text, I don't, I, we're going to bring in some other scriptures, but I believe all the, the, the seeds, the roots of listening to Jesus, they're all found. In fact, I believe they're all found in God's words in verse 7. There are three essential, there are many more, but there are at least three essential keys to listening to Jesus. Three things that we can and must do if we are going to not be like Peter, James, and John and just keep right on going, and we're going to listen to him and seek his face for clarity and direction, whatever it is we're going through. And again, I think we can do it all in verse 7. The, the seeds of it are there. Three essential keys for listening to Jesus. Here's the first one. It's not going to sound super spiritual, but it actually is. If you and I are going to, to listen to Jesus, 
We're going to make room for him to speak to us in our lives. The first thing we have to do is set our priorities. You've got to set your priorities. You've got to know what your priorities are. You know, a wise pastor, I've heard him say it several times. Nobody, any of you know, I don't know him personally, but I've heard him speak many times. And every time I've heard him speak, he, he has said this at some point because always, I've always been in the context where he's talking to other pastors. He says this, show me your schedule and I'll tell you what you treasure. Show me your calendar. Don't tell me what you treasure. Don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me your calendar. Bring up Google, all right? Show me, bring me your day planner, and I will show you what you treasure. Why? Because we make time for what matters to us. And if it really matters, we make time for it in advance. Why? Because we want to be sure it happens. We want to be sure we don't miss it. Daily exercise, coffee dates with friends, family vacation. We plan these things in advance. We work, we take the effort to get them in the schedule because we don't want to miss them. Show me your schedule and I'll tell you what you treasure. What does it say? What do you do? Where do you go and how do you spend your time? Now listen, and I'm just going to be real honest. I'm about to step on our collective spiritual toes. Mine first, okay? Mine got stepped on first. Let's step on them together. We all love each other. Jesus loves us. But here's the thing. To a man, woman, and child here, those of us who know Christ would say, he, he is the most important thing in my life. And we mean that. We do. And I don't question that. But... If you say your relationship with Jesus Christ is the thing in your life that matters most, where does he fit into your day? Show me your schedule and I'll tell you what you treasure. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about five chapters and 15 minutes of prayer and it's got to be this. And it's, I'm just saying, where does he fit into your day? Where does he fit into your day? And this is, I think, as I say, I think the seed of this is in verse 7. Here's what I'm asking. In the same way that God the Father clearly and rightly said, this is my beloved son, can I say, this is my beloved friend? This is my beloved Savior. And I listen to him. And I make time for him. And I try to listen. And I don't always hear well. And I don't always obey perfectly. Far from it. But can I legitimately say, this is my beloved son, my, my beloved friend, and then produce evidence of it? Actual evidence to say I actually mean it. It's not just in a cross stitch or a painting on the wall. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's actually my life. We need fewer signs on the wall and more time with Jesus. We've got to know our priorities. If we're going to listen to him, we must make time for him. Number one, we've got to set our priorities. Number two, this is, and this is the, the key, the crux of the matter. This is the most important. We've got to open our Bibles. We really do. As elementary as it sounds, we've got to open our Bibles. I've got to open mine, and you must open yours. Why? Because of Psalm 19. I want you to take a moment, hold your place here, and turn with me to Psalm 19. There's a lot of places in the Scripture we could go. I think this is perhaps the most succinct it's, it's almost certainly the most beautiful. If you want more, read Psalm 119 when you go home. But here's what in Psalm 19 David says about the written word of God. Psalm 19, verse 7. All the things he's about to say are metaphors or, or, or descriptors of the, word, the written word of God. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Anybody need their soul restored this morning? I do. I did. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Who'd like to be a little more wise? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Who's got a sad heart that needs to rejoice? I do. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Who'd like a little more clarity today than they had the day before? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord, even His judgments are true and righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Whoa, that's a statement. God's word is more desirable than gold. I like gold. I like what gold can give me. I don't have any of it, but I'd like some. But God's word is more valuable, more desirable than gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. God uses his word to keep me out of trouble. And in keeping his word, there is small reward. A little bit of help. Not what my Bible says. What's yours say? Great reward. Great reward. In keeping the word of... Now, that's the Old Testament. You go to the New Testament, there's 2 Timothy 3.16. You don't need to turn there, but it says essentially the same thing in a more pointed and, and sort of a, a, a teacher-like way. All Scripture. Everybody say all Scripture. Say it like you mean to say, all Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All of it, all of it is useful for those things. Simply put, what the Bible says about itself is this is where God speaks to his people. I want to listen to Jesus. i got to open my Bible. I don't know how, and I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but I don't know how many of you read the Babylon Bee. Anybody know what the Babylon Bee is? All right, about half of you, a third of you do. The Babylon Bee is a phenomenal website. It's Christian satire. That's the key, satire, okay? Fake news, but funny news. They had this great article a couple of weeks ago. This is the kind of thing they published. Man sitting literally three feet away from his Bible asks God to speak to him, right? And, and I look at that and go, isn't that true? We beg and wonder and we call our friends and we ask and we post on Facebook and, and, and we, we seek people out. And like, what does God want me to do? What's he doing in my life? Where is, where is he going? And I never think to go right to the living word of God. And we laugh at stuff like that. At least I do laugh at stuff like that because it's so true and it's so me. And it's so you. I've got this treasure that, that says about itself it's more desirable than gold. And I look everywhere else for answers and help and direction than in it. Why? Because it's hard. Because it takes time. Because it's not all about quick fixes, and so I don't. What am I saying? I'm saying we want to hear from God so that we can follow him. I believe that in our hearts, every single one of us here truly wants to follow the Son. But if we truly want to follow the Son, we've got to open our Bibles. We've got to set our priorities We've got to open our Bibles, and then the third and final thing, and we'll pull it all together with this, we must choose, decide that we will obey. Choose to obey. Remember what I told you the word listen means in verse 7? It just doesn't mean pay attention. It means pay attention and plan to obey. Pay attention and plan to obey. And the best way, here's, here's what I've discovered, and this isn't just true in spiritual things, this is true in your job, this is true in your family, it's true in your marriage, it's true in your life. The best way to ensure you do what you're supposed to do, you're going to obey, the best time to decide is in advance. 
in advance. Before I open the Bible in the morning or the evening or on my lunch break or wherever it is, I I choose to commit before the Lord. I make a one-time plant my flag commitment, but I have to continue to come back and remind myself of it that, that if God does in fact speak to me in a pointed way, and I'm not saying he does every time, but I'm telling you, he did it to me this week a couple of times. And, and I have to decide in advance, if God says something to me, a word of correction, instruction, direction, conviction, I decide before I even open it up, I'm going to do what he tells me to do. I'm going to follow where he, tell, where he leads me. I'm going to say, confess, repent of that which he convicts me of. The best time to decide to obey is in advance. Again, pay attention and plan to obey. Because if I wait for, here's what I know about me, and I bet I know it about you. If I wait till the moment, I'll find an escape hatch, right? I will find a side door and take it and, and rationalize to myself. This applies to other people, but my situation is different. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do it yet. I don't need to do it now. Other people do because they have problems, but not me. Jesus wouldn't make me do that in the moment. So I decide in advance. Listen to James 1.25. I won't have you turn there, but I will have you make note of it. James 1.25. Whoever looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's the Bible, the Word of God. Whoever looks at the law, the perfect law of liberty, and abides by it. To abide means to, four-letter word, begins with O, means to obey it, will be blessed in what he or she does. The one who looks at the law and obeys it will be blessed. That doesn't mean it's going to rain $5 bills from heaven. It just means that God's going to take care of you and meet you in your place of need. We'll be blessed. In other words, my translation would be, you'll never go wrong by doing what Jesus says is right. But here's where we find out what Jesus says is right and good and precious and holy. That is not only how we can, but why we must listen to Jesus. Listen, there's nothing simplistic or simple about the transfiguration. And I know you've got six questions about this passage that I didn't even touch on today because I have 12, right? There's so much about this passage I don't understand. There's so much about it we didn't even dig into. We've only looked at it from one of many possible angles. And for that reason, I just want you to know that, that coming up with a big idea for this message was really, really hard. Really, really difficult. It's always hard, but this week it was especially hard because I didn't want to reduce something so glorious and powerful down to something simplistic. I just want to keep it simple without being simplistic. So I'm just telling you, it was hard. But there's always got to be a big idea. I always want to be able to give you the sermon in a sentence. You say, well, what was that passage? What was that message about? What was it about? And then I kind of realized as I came all the way around full circle, I realized that that this is really the big idea of the message as we've looked at it this morning. Jesus Christ deserves no less than my undivided attention. Jesus Christ deserves no less than our undivided attention. When we catch a glimpse of his glory and we, we understand what he's done for us, we should ask, how could we want to do any less than listen and obey him with all our heart. Father, thank you this morning for the fact that you are the God who has spoken. 
Father, it wasn't up to us, it wasn't up to the generations that came hundreds and thousands of years before us to, to try to discern you and figure you out and come up with some sort of explanation for how the world works, but, but back to the very beginning of the Scripture, in the beginning, there was you. And we're told over and over again from the very first pages and chapters of the Bible that you spoke the world into existence. You spoke creation into reality. You formed a man and you breathed life into him, your own very breath of life into him. And the Bible says you've been speaking to us in countless various ways ever since, and then one day you spoke to us in your son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived, died, and rose on our behalf, who is in fact glorified at your right hand right now, and one day soon he's going to show it to us all. But Father, we're here in that meantime. We're here in that downtime. We're here in that quiet time. At least that's the way it seems to us. And you've given us a word of instruction. Listen to him. Father, the words are so easy, and, and yet the practicing of it is so hard. With so many distractions, with so many burdens. Father, would you do a work in each one of our lives today, each and every one of us, great or small, Father, a, a, a tiny step or, or, or a gigantic one, but, but to bring us back around to a place where we are once again choosing to listen to you, when you are, really are our first priority, when we really do decide it's time to open my Bible, when we really will, really will choose to obey even when what you say to do seems so hard. Father, a lot of us here today are in the waiting or in the meantime. We're in that valley. We're on that plateau or plain. The mountaintop seems distant. Father, my Bible says, all of our Bibles say, Jesus said, I am with you always. I walk with you always. Better than that, my spirit lives within you. Father, help us to lean hard on Jesus today. Help us to lean hard on Jesus tomorrow. To look to you, to listen to you, to be changed by you because of it. Father, because we really do want to follow the Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.